Dear Government and NHS England, Make up your mind! It's Friday the 4th of December 2020 and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Welcome back everyone, thanks for joining us once again. Neil Tucker here from MB Medical bringing you this latest Hot Topics podcast and what a roller coaster it's been over the last three weeks since I last spoke to you. Before you ask, no, I don't have a bloody clue what's going on either but we are going to have a little look at stuff about vaccinations today so what on earth we're being tasked to do, when we might be doing it why we might be doing it and to whom. Then we're going to have a look at some of the new research that's come out in the journals over the last few weeks. And we're going to have a look at a BMJ paper on the best first line antihypertensive for the majority of our patients. And we're going to have a look at a couple of Lancet papers that published on giving statins to 70 to 100 year olds. Yes, you heard me right, 100 years old. So three weeks ago, we had the first news that the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine seemed to be effective and safe. And now just three weeks later, we've managed to go through all the necessary checks to get this drug licensed for use in Britain. Not only has it been a record-breaking short amount of time to assess the data, which no one else outside the MHRA and the Joint Committee of Vaccinations and Immunisations has seen, But somehow we seem to have got a run on the rest of the world. We are the first to license this vaccination. We're the first to get it into the country and we will be the first to start immunising the population. The White House is up in arms. They're demanding an investigation to how we got it first. Europe is rather pragmatic, just saying, well, we're going for all the appropriate checks and safety precautions and ignoring the ubulance of British ministers claiming that it's because we're just a better country. They seem to have forgotten the fact that this drug has been tested in 40,000 people and we're about to vaccinate 800,000. We are very much a country-sized guinea pig. This is truly a very peculiar situation because I want to go and join the queue, roll up my sleeve and get vaccinated for coronavirus. The last thing I want to do is have COVID. I'm pretty sure I haven't had it so far. I don't want to get it in the future. However, this really is a leap of faith because this is an unprecedented situation. Another context for this word in the age of COVID. But really, it's quite a unique situation that medics and scientists may be accepting a medicine that they've had no opportunity to have a look at any the information about other than what we've seen in a press release. And clearly the UK public is not stupid. Recent polls have shown that almost half of the UK adult population are unlikely or unwilling to have the vaccination. So while there's a huge amount of stress about the logistics of delivering this vaccine on a local level, It may well be that we'll have a thousand thawed vaccines and only half the people will turn up. I mean, the potential for waste with this is actually really quite staggering. Meanwhile, this week, GPs have gone from potential saviours of the nation to being relegated to phase two. And yet again, our hospital colleagues are going to get all the glory by receiving the first vaccinations and being able to give them to the highest risk populations. I still can't work out if I'm actually disappointed or I'm just relieved about the workload implications. So apparently they'll be getting the vaccines next week and they'll be focusing on administering it to care home staff and the over 80s. 
care home residents were, of course, deemed the highest priority because they're at the greatest risk. But everyone's realised that with this vaccine that needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees, actually getting it out to care homes and administering it in a timely fashion is just a bit of a head scratcher. I saw a report saying that Scotland had figured out this problem, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's just because it's bloody freezing up there. And simply winding the car windows down and turning off the heater probably isn't going to work well enough for us softies down south. Actually, what's happened is Pfizer have said that it is okay to store the vaccine for up to 12 hours in its unfrozen state, which will obviously make things a lot easier for everyone over the next few months. Of course, the big question in most of our minds is, do we still have to cancel Christmas? And I actually think that no one has an answer here, which in itself is baffling. The MHRA in the Joint Committee of Vaccinations and Immunisations has been doing this sort of ongoing review of the data as as it's been published on these vaccinations. So the regulatory bodies have been well aware about the issues around how it needs to be stored and how that's going to affect the rollout. So why are we once again scrabbling around for a solution, clearly making it up as we go along? I know we've all been busy, but a bit of forward planning would have been a really good idea. Now, Simon Stevens, at least in England, has suggested that GPs will come on board in the second phase, which will happen in the next few weeks. Perhaps that's unlikely to start before early in the new year. The BMA have suggested that it could be in the next two weeks, so directly before Christmas. However, The UK has only got 800,000 doses coming through initially and there's no certainty when we'll be getting further batches. So that's 400,000 people that could potentially be vaccinated and that doesn't go very far. It's not going to take long before these large hospital hubs have used up that initial supply. So it may well be that we're not going to see this filtering through into general practice for a while yet. So far, we have been talking about the Pfizer vaccine. But what about the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccination? So, of course, the vaccine efficacy for this has been reported at somewhere between 65 and 90%, depending on which regime people have been given. And it was those who received the lower dose initially, followed by the full dose, who showed the greatest immune response and the greatest benefit. This was a big surprise to everyone, most of all to the researchers conducting the studies because they never meant to give that lower dose. It was just one big cock up. Now, theoretically, the Oxford vaccine should be an easier sell. It's based on established, effective and safe techniques that have been used to develop a range of vaccines that have been used over the last few years. But all week I've been listening on the radio to discussion around this mistake. And I think this is going to put a lot of people off as well. The mistake means that the study actually violates its own trial protocol. And of course, normally we'd look at a change in the protocol midway through a study as somewhat suspicious. I don't believe there's anything suspicious going on here. I think it was a genuine mistake. What it also means is that the very positive efficacy result of 90% they've talked about is based on subgroup analysis. And of course, the smaller numbers in these groups then lead to greater uncertainty about the results. Now, the study investigators did report that the findings in that subgroup analysis were statistically significant. So that is quite reassuring. But if ever there was an argument for the comment needs further research, then this is probably it. 
But again, I don't want to be too downbeat about the Oxford vaccine because I think it's a remarkable achievement. And we shouldn't forget that even in the normal groups, they achieved over 60% efficacy, which actually is considered a very positive response. And anything over 50% would have been, cons- would have been considered a big win. Couple that with this being a tried and tested technique so we can have greater confidence in the safety profile of this vaccination. I think there's lots to be upbeat about. What else have we learned about the vaccines over the last couple of weeks? Well, there was an interesting article in the BMJ last week just comparing the three up and coming vaccines. So we've got the Pfizer BioNTech one, we've got the Oxford AstraZeneca one, and then there's the Moderna one as well. And they've all got very different price ranges. So the Pfizer vaccine cost about £15, the Oxford one about £3, and the Moderna one £25. So by giving the Oxford vaccine rather than the Moderna vaccine for two doses for the entire population, you'd save two and a half billion pounds. That made me think about the overall costs of administering the vaccine. And of course, we're going to be getting something like 25 pounds per two doses for a patient, which arguably isn't enough to cover our own costs completely, but will still cost 1.5 billion pounds overall. Which sounds like a lot of money, but then put that in perspective with the total cost of the pandemic to the UK so far, which is 193 billion. And actually, we start to seem like an absolute bargain. Last thought on the vaccines, and then I think we better move on. And that's while we're trying to get our heads around how we're going to deliver it to the UK. We shouldn't just solely focus inwards because this is a global pandemic and a global response is required. And we need to look outwards and support those countries that maybe don't have as good infrastructure as we do. If we think that we're struggling, can you imagine countries without good health systems, without good roads? And the only way to be truly confident that our country is safe is to make sure that other countries and their populations are safe as well. Okay, now let's move on and have a look at some of the latest research that has come out. And we'll start off with the BMJ. And this was an interesting paper from a couple of weeks ago, looking at the role of antihypertensives in the initial treatment of high blood pressure. So the reason this is interesting is because, of course, in the UK, we're almost a bit of an outlier amongst international guidance for hypertension management. Because NICE is very specific about which drugs we should use for which age and for which ethnicity. Most international guidelines give very broad brushstrokes, leaving it up to the clinician to decide on the best drug. So that begs the question, who's right, them or us? So this was a large observational cohort study based on UK data pulled out of primary care, looking at over 150,000 people with newly diagnosed hypertension and no diabetes. So they compared calcium channel blockers to thiazides to ACE inhibitors and ARBs, then further stratified by age and also ethnicity, so black or non-black populations. So they basically found that it didn't really matter what drug you treated someone with. All of the options led to an overall improvement in someone's blood pressure. But there wasn't really any difference whether you were taking a calcium channel blocker compared with an ACE inhibitor if you were younger than 55 or older. And your ethnicity didn't seem to make much of a difference either. So in the black population, they didn't find a statistically significant difference in systolic blood pressure comparing calcium channel blockers to ACE inhibitors and ARBs. So what's really important about this data is that it's based on real world data rather than extrapolating the findings of blood pressure trials into general practice. 
certainly makes the nice guidance feel a little bit outdated. And of course, this algorithm has been around for a long, long time now. So should we abandon these algorithms and go for something with a bit more fluidity, which gives the clinician more discretion? Well, there is a problem with this, and that's when algorithms are either too complicated or we have too much freedom, then often people end up getting under-treated. And it reminds me of a very successful project that's been going on in West Yorkshire for a few years now called the Healthy Heart Project. And as part of that, they formed an algorithm for hypertension, which was a dramatic simplification, even over the NICE guidance. So basically, if you've got stage two hypertension, you get amlodipine and you get indapamide. If that's not enough, you get losartan. If that's not enough, you get spironolactone. Forget other drug choices. Keep it really simple. All clinicians know what they're doing. It's easy to follow whether patients are having the correct treatment or not. And they've had big, big improvements in their cardiovascular outcomes locally since they've adopted this strategy. Now, I know just before the COVID pandemic struck, that West Yorkshire group were looking to implement phase two, which was around cholesterol modification. But there were still ongoing debates about whether the very elderly should receive some kind of lipid lowering therapy. Now, if you were on the Hot Topics course a year or so ago, remember those days when you sat in a room for the hundreds of people for hours at a time? We talked about a cohort trial that seemed to show that in people over the age of 75 or so, they failed to get any benefit from statin therapy. Well, this week we've had two papers published in The Lancet looking at the very elderly populations of 70 to 100 years old. So this data comes out of Denmark and between 2003 and 2015, they recruited 90,000 people to the Copenhagen General Population Study. So at baseline, they didn't have any cardiovascular disease or diabetes and they were not taking any lipid lowering therapies. They were aged between 20 and 100 when they were included first in the trial. They then looked at a raft of different variables, but basically they were comparing people who had stayed fine versus those who'd had an MI or atherosclerotic disease. And then they stratified them by age and then they examined their LDLs. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they showed that the greater your LDL, the greater your risk of having some kind of cardiovascular disease. Also, they showed that the greater your age, the greater your chance of having cardiovascular disease. But what was interesting was when you combined the two and they found that a combination of high LDL and high age amplified your risk quite dramatically. They surmised from all of this that the numbers needed to treat over five years to prevent one cardiovascular event was lowest in the 70 to 100 year age group. But that's a theoretical position based on the knowledge that if we lower people's LDL, then they seem to have less cardiovascular events. But we don't really have solid data that that's actually the case in the older population. So the second paper in The Lancet was a new systematic review and meta-analysis of 29 different randomised control trials on lowering LDL cholesterol, specifically looking at the over 75s. And they included information on statins, but also azetamibe and also the new PCSK9 inhibitors as well. So this was 244,000 patients, 9% were over the age of 75, the rest were then used as controls. And they found for every one millimole 
per litre reduction in LDL cholesterol. You had a 26% relative risk reduction in a major cardiovascular event, including death, MI, stroke, and coronary revascularization. This reduction in risk was not statistically significantly different than that risk reduction seen in younger patients under the age of 75, effectively demonstrating no matter what your age, the chances are you will benefit from a statin. Combining this with the previous studies showing that your risk is highest with greatest age, then that brings us back round to the proposition that the elderly are the most likely to benefit from a statin. How does this marry up with the previous research we've discussed? Well, that's really hard to know. There are dedicated randomised control trials still being conducted looking specifically at the elderly population with them as the focus rather than a subset. And these will hopefully provide some further clarity on the issue. In the meantime, well, let's just put it to our patients, give them the option. In my experience, most 90-year-olds, if they haven't been on a statin, they'll probably politely decline or hit you with their stick. Right, I think that's enough from me today. A big thank you to everyone who's been sending me messages over the last few weeks. Sorry if I haven't managed to get back to you, but um, please do keep them coming. I do read them all and they do influence what we do on the podcast and actually sort of wider in some of the work that we do with MB Medical as well. So remember, you can get hold of us on our email. So hottopics at nbmedical.com, on Facebook and on Twitter. So at GP Hot Topics and at Dr. Neil Tucker. We'll try and do one more podcast before Christmas unless I'm knee deep in COVID vaccinations. And thank you to the person who pointed out I completely fluffed the Hill Street Blues quote that my patient had told me last podcast. So let's try it one more time. Let's be careful out there. Bye bye.